Thank you, Matt. Appreciate that. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3, please. And um, my goal for us is to systematically go through um, specific books of the Bible. My goal is, is that as the Scripture is taught, that you will remember these truths. And not only will you remember these truths, our goal is, is that also that you'll have a model of, of knowing how to study the Bible yourself. Um, and today we are in Philippians chapter 3. We are going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Um, if you have the church app, the um, outline is on the church app. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can look back at your email and shows you about how you can get the church app. And if you don't know what I'm talking about with the email, then you can see us afterwards and we can help you out. But there's an outline that's available to you. And we're just going to go through Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 11. Um, it's almost like as if we're going down a walk, a journey, a path, and, and we're, we're walking down this path and we're going to see certain things that are beautiful, but ultimately that path leads to something grand, like a waterfall, and it's majestic and it's beautiful. And this passage today really reminds me of that, that as we walk through the passage of Scripture, that we're going to see some pretty cool things along the way, but eventually we're going to get to something majestic, and it's going to be the truth of really what I believe that this particular passage is um, making reference to. The title of my message this morning is Credit That to My Account, The Righteousness of Christ. Look with me in Philippians chapter 3 in verse number 1. The first thing he gives, he gives a command, and it says to rejoice in the Lord. He says, finally... And the word finally is not like what the pastor says, I'm about halfway done with his sermon. That's not what we're talking about there. The word finally is so then or as for the rest. He's making a transition from what he was saying in chapter 2. And then he's going to say, okay, so as for the rest, I'm making a change. There's a transition here. And let me tell you something else. And he says to those who are brothers or those who are sisters in Christ... There's a command, and that command is to rejoice. And specifically, he says to rejoice in the Lord. It's hard for us to rejoice in our circumstances because our circumstances change day by day. But he says you are to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice or joy is one of the key words throughout the book of Philippians. And it's a command here. And just note it that here that, that Paul is in prison and he's telling the people of Philippi, you need to rejoice. You need to find joy in the Lord. Almost in a subtle way that there's a lot of other things that we can try to find our joy in. But that's not really going to bring joy and satisfaction. But he says to rejoice in the Lord. It's present tense. It's an imperative. And then he says this, he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. The things that I'm going to say, the things that I'm going to write, it's not a problem for me, but it's also going to be a help to you. It's going to be safe for you. And sometimes people will say, well, what do you mean that the things that he's going to write to them again? What is this repetition that he's talking about? And there's a number of interpretations, if I can say it that way. He's writing to them and he says, 
to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, but it's safe for you. So one of the options is, is that uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus, they're going to have this letter, the book of Philippians, and they're going to go back to the church of Philippi. And Titus and Epaphroditus will say, all right, this is what the Apostle Paul said. He wants to reiterate to you, and then they're going to orally say what he wants them to do. But then there, he's also written them this book. So that could be one translation. That could be one interpretation of to write the same things to you. It's going to be a help for, for you. You heard what Timothy and Epaphroditus said, but here's something written. That's one translation, okay? And that's possible. Some other people believe that Paul, within the 10-year time of when the church was established in Acts chapter 16 to when he's writing to them now 10 years later, that there might have been another book that he has written to them in that time frame. So he's saying, I'm going to write to you again the same things I've done before. So that's, that's another one. What I believe really is probably that the things that he spoke to them when he was there in Acts 16, the things, the truths that he proclaimed, the gospel that he's doing again. So it's not what Epaphroditus and Timothy will say to them, but I believe it's what he has said to them. And he's saying, okay, I'm going to write the same things to you, the same things that I proclaimed about the gospel, about Jesus. It's going to be good for you. It's going to be safe. And that's what he is referring to, I believe, here. And the remainder of the text is really going to be a contrast between Paul the Apostle, and he's going to tell his story, if I can say it that way, and he's going to contrast it with these false teachers, the Judaizers. And there's going to be a sharp contrast of, of what the Apostle Paul thinks about his past and his thinking process about righteousness against what the Judaizers are trying to proclaim in the church and around the church even at that point. And there's going to be a contrast. And that's why he says in verse number 2, three times... Either in your translation it says, look out, look out, or look out. Or it says, beware, beware, beware. And he's going to warn them about certain false teaching and certain false teachers that can wreak havoc in the church and do damage in the church. And he's warning them to watch out for false teaching. Um, this past week with the Hurricane um, Ian... They talked about how that a lot of people would heed the warnings that went out because they hadn't heard it over and over and over again, a bunch of false alarms. And I guess in Florida or in other times, the more that we hear something, it's just kind of like, well, is it really going to come to pass? And Paul is saying, listen, beware, beware, beware. You watch these people. And the first ones that he mentions are the dogs. It's not the Georgia Bulldogs. That's not what he's talking about. For you football fans wondering about that, he's, he's, he's talking about dogs. And the dogs of that day weren't the domesticated dogs that we think about, especially not my dogs, right, that I have at my house. The dogs of this day would be like a pack of dogs in a city. They were not domesticated. They would run around, and they would... Um, they would go for scraps, and they would, they would growl at people, and they were just wild dogs. And he's, he's giving an imagery of these people here that just as a dog would go throughout the city and ravage and growl and attack, 
that there can be dogs, there can be people who are false teachers who come into church that will do damage to the church. And he's saying, you beware of these dogs. He says, you beware of the evildoers. You be aware, you be concerned about those who mutilate the flesh. In our English translation, we really don't get what he's saying here, but there's really a pun. Because these people would be the Judaizers, and the Judaizers would say, yeah, I believe that it's Christ plus the law. It would be Christ plus circumcision. And he's saying, no, you're not people of circumcision, but you really are mutilating. You're mutilators of the flesh. And he's doing a pun there, and he's saying, you be careful about people like this coming in to the church, those who would be legalists, those who would want to add anything to Christ, Christ plus anything. He's saying, you be careful. See, these people, they believed um, that it was circumcision along with the gospel. It says in Acts chapter 15 that they were saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And we need to understand they would say or they would believe that Jesus is not enough. It's Jesus plus something else. And as we sang earlier, folks, Jesus is enough. That's all that matters. It's not Jesus plus your membership. It's not Jesus plus your baptism. It's not Jesus plus anything else. It's Jesus and Jesus alone, that Jesus is enough. And that's what he's going through here and explaining that salvation comes through Christ and Christ alone. It's not apart from any work of the law. It's not about anything that we can do. It's not Jesus plus our good works. One particular commentator said this about legalism and how it, it, it is rampant in churches. He says this, Satan's greased plank on which he shoots millions through the churches into hell. The great masses of church members at the present day are numb in the pews. From the simple fact that they have no experiences to tell, they are depending on church loyalty, legal obedience, and good works to save them. And Paul is saying through this passage of Scripture that we cannot rely on our good works or anything that we can do for our, our salvation. The third truth that we see, and it's really going to be where I, we'll spend most of our time this morning, is he wants them to remember who they are. In Christ, that we are to remember who we are. Look at verse number three. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The word we there in the original, is emphatic. We are like this. They are like that. There's a distinction. This is us. This is how we are described. And the first thing that he says about how we're described, those who are the, of the circumcision, the true circumcision, not of the, the flesh, but of the spirit, is number one, believers are described as those who worship God. The Lord said that we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And I'm so thankful that you guys are here this morning. We had a great crowd the first hour. You look good. You smell good, I'm sure. I hope. But if you just came to church to just like check in, to just to do your time, just to go through the motions, that's not worship. 
Worship is when we give worth to Christ. It's not about ourselves. It's about loving and praising and honoring Christ. And we do it with a sincere heart. We do it even in the midst of brokenness, that we're sinners and we need Jesus and we don't have our lives together. And this word here goes beyond just our worship this morning because really living the Christian life would be pretty good if, if all we had to do is come in at 9.30 or 11 o'clock, do our time of one hour of worship, and then we go out the rest of the week and just do what we want. But do you know the Lord expects more than just our doing our time? I mean, that's like going to prison, just doing our time. He wants us when we leave here today to continue to worship Him, to continue to honor Him, to continue to serve Him, to continue to give Him the worth and the value that is due to His name. And that means in your homes, that means in your workplace, that means in our community, that we are to worship the Lord. And it's not that we, we do some mystical or magical motion or potion, but we just worship Him. We honor Him. That's what we're known for. That's what we ought to be known for here. The other thing he says that we are to glory in Jesus. Believers are to glory in Jesus. Sometimes people get excited about their vacations. Enjoy your vacations. Get excited about your cars. Enjoy your cars. We have so many things we can get excited about and glory about, but do we ever glory in Jesus? Do we like to talk about Him? Do we love Him? Are we, are we have an overflowing heart of love for what Christ has done for us? That's what He's saying here. We are to glory, in a sense, as the old hymn says, that we would come to the conclusion is that Jesus is all the world to me. And I hope that's true in your heart this morning. The third thing we see here, uh, remembering who we are, believers put no confidence in the flesh. This is flesh. The Bible says, in me dwells no good thing. The Bible says, the spirit indeed is willing, and that's good. Can we just put a period there? But he goes on to say that the flesh is what? The flesh is weak. So why would we ever trust the flesh? Why would we trust the flesh to save us? Why would we trust the flesh to help us to sanctify us? We can't rely on the flesh. We can't rely on ourselves. We need Christ. And when we go out here today and we go out and live the life tomorrow and the next day, we need Christ. We need Jesus to help us to do and be what he has called us to be. And we need to look to him and say, Lord, would you help us? Would you help me? I can't do it in of myself. I will fail and I will fail miserably. Believers are to put no confidence in the flesh. Look at verse number four. He gives an illustration of himself. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's like, all right, if, if we're going we're, we're gonna to kind of evaluate of whether or not we can do it in our flesh, if we can do it of our own, 
if anybody has any, anything that's accomplished, let me just tell you my story, in essence, he's going to say. See, the Judaizers appealed to their impressive credentials. The Apostle Paul saying, all right, I've got some credentials as well. I'll be glad to share with you my story. And really what you're finding out here is he's going down the path of, is salvation by human achievement? Is it by what we have accomplished? Or is salvation by Christ and Christ alone? And we can have all kinds of achievements and be all, uh, you know, caught up with all the things that we've accomplished, but that's not going to amount, as the old saying says, to a hill of beans. It's not going to accomplish anything. And he's doing a contrast here. And he gives these, these um, truths in verse 5 and following. The first thing we find out is don't put our confidence in a ritual. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day. And if you were a Jewish young man, you would have been circumcised the eighth day. If you were outside of Israel and you later on in life wanted to come and be an Israelite, you would have been old. You would not have been an eight-dayer like him, right? And he says, hey, when it came to Jewishness on day number eight, that's when I was circumcised, just like I was supposed to. He says, he was of the people of Israel. We are not to put confidence in our nationality. I'm so thankful that I'm American. I'm thankful that I was born in America. But do you know what? God loves everybody just as much as he loves Americans. And so often we think, oh, we're so blessed and we're above everything because we're Americans. No, we are blessed because of God. And he says, I'm not going to put confidence in my my background, my heritage. He was a physical descendant of Abraham. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin. That would be the, the, of all the tribes, that would have been the elite tribe. That was the son of my right hand. And he's like, I'm not going to boast in that. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He, he says, don't put confidence in your tradition. Yes, he was fluent in Greek, but he knew Hebrew. He kept his traditions. He understood the culture. And so often, I think, in our society today, especially perhaps down south, is that we can talk about, well, you know what? My great, 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 great grandmother, she was a Baptist, and I'm a Baptist, and that's all that matters. Do you realize when we get to heaven, the Lord's not going to ask you what denomination you are? He's going to ask you, what relationship do you have with my son, Jesus? So just because your great, great, great grandmother was a Baptist doesn't mean that you're going to slide into heaven because of your tradition and your heritage. And he's going back to a Hebrew of the Hebrews. The next thing he says, as a law of Pharisee. The Pharisee, they loved their rules. Really, the, the word Pharisee was was literally the separated ones. They were so separated from, quote, sin that they added rules to it. The problem was is they began to make their rules, and then these rules over here was, was an equal authority to really what God said. And they were so self-righteous. They were so protective, and they were the separated ones. They would be what we would call law abiding citizens. They kept the rules. And I believe that there are many moral people that think they're going to go to heaven because they were pretty good people. They never broke the law. They were good abiding citizens. And the Apostle Paul is going to say, keeping the rules 
isn't going to make you a Christian. It's not going to get you to heaven. He says in verse 6, as to zeal, as to passion, I was a persecutor of the church. We're not to put our confidence in our zeal. If anybody was, was zealous, if anybody was sincere, it would have been the Apostle Paul. But he was also sincerely wrong. So your zeal for whatever cause you want will not save you. He says, as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. He was like the rich young ruler keeping the law. He was obedient to the law. And really he comes to the point of, are we going to rely on our righteousness? All the good things that we do? Is this what's going to save us? Or are we going to rely on the righteousness of Christ? And there's a contrast here. It's not our own righteousness. It's not our heritage. It's not where we're from. It's not all the things about our past. It's, it's about Christ. And that's where he's driving this to. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have confidence in the gospel this morning that if you were to die today or five years from now that you would be in heaven? Is that confidence in what you have done? Is that confidence in who your parents were or what denomination you are or because you're a pretty good person? Or do you have confidence in your heart that my confidence is only in Christ. And that's the gospel, folks. That's understanding what Paul is addressing here. It's not in what we can accomplish because all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. But Christ has righteousness that can be credited to our account. Look in verses 7 and following here. Believers also value Christ above all. And if you have a, a Bible, specifically if you have something you can circle with, look at the times that he mentions the word counted. He says, but whatever I, gain I had, I counted, and that's a mathematical term, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Nine times in five verses he mentions Jesus. He mentions Christ. There are some times when people share their testimony. They will share their testimony like, well, you know what, man, before I became a Christian, I partied. I had all kinds of jobs. I was able to do everything. And guess what? And then I became, I became a Christian. Like, that's a bad thing. We, we, we shouldn't glory in the past life. We should glory in the, the life we have in Christ. That is everything. That is everything. That's what Paul is doing here. He, he, he lists all of his accomplishments of everything that he has said in the past, verses 4 and following. He puts them in one column, and he adds all of that up, and he says, it, it's nothing. I've, I've counted all of that, and on this column here, I have Christ, 
And because of Christ, I have everything. In 1891, there was a young man who was 14 years old. His name was Jesse Livermore. Jesse Livermore left his farm, and he went to Boston because he wanted to learn about the stock exchange. Within a year's time, Jesse had earned, in that day, $1,000, which would be equivalent to our day, about $28,000 in one year. He would uh, shell, shell, sell short or bet against a stock. He continued to do that until 1929, right before the Great Depression, that he aggressively um, bid against dozens of strong companies that had strong reputations, and he bet against them. When everyone lost everything in the Great Depression, Jesse became a multi-millionaire. It would be $1.4 billion today that he fell into the wealth because of what he gambled on or he staked his life on. It was known at that time the greatest trade of all time. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is listing all of the things and all of his accomplishments and he says, there it is all. There, that's all there, and then I have Christ here. He says, that is nothing compared to Christ. Do you believe that this morning? He goes on specifically, depending on your translation, he calls it filth or rubbish or dung. All his accomplishments, all that the world would see he says it's a bunch of filth or dung or rubbish. And it was very graphic. It, it doesn't matter. It's worthless. Because truly, Jesus is all to me. He's all that I need. Christ is enough, as we just sang. Christ is enough. And he says in verse 8, that I may win or that I may gain Christ. He had renounced his gain to gain Christ. It didn't matter. And I trust that that might be true in your heart this morning. Look at verse number 9. Believers also understand how we were made righteous. And be found in him, Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And the fact is this, folks, that only righteous people go to heaven. And the problem says, the Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. So if only righteous people go to heaven, and the Bible also says that there is none righteous, no, not one, then we have a problem. But God has a solution. And it's that because Christ paid the debt that we had due, he suffered our sin. He suffered our hell. He died in our place. That in Christ, we might have the righteousness of God. That we might be able to stand before God just as Jesus would be pure in God's eyes. We are in Christ, and Christ has credited, us, credited to us His righteousness that we can be received by God the Father. And if that doesn't make you say hallelujah and amen, I don't know what will. But we will be accepted. 
we will be let in. And it's not, oh, let me think about it. No, it's, it's welcome. Welcome. Amazing, amazing that we are found in Christ. The Bible says here justification is a gift from God. And justification is received by faith. He says that twice. But one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. It's because we put our faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Jesus, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, that we might be received. And if you're a believer here this morning, he will receive you this morning. And that will be wonderful. Look in verses 10 and following. We find out in verse number 10 that believers desire to know Christ more and more. Paul says this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I love what Count Zinzendorf said. He said, I have one passion and it is he, only he. And that's what the Apostle Paul says, that I may know him. Do you realize that the Apostle Paul says this? 30 years after he was saved, that he still had a passion to know more about Jesus? How many of you have been saved for at least, have been saved for at least 30 years? Raise your hand. Wow. More than the first hour. It was all the young people first hour. And there's some young people here as well. I was thinking this past week, that I have been saved <laughs> for 43 years. Do I still have the passion today that I may know Christ? Paul wasn't saved and satisfied. He, he didn't arrive. There's more to know. There's more to experience. And specifically here, folks, he's talking about the power of his resurrection. What does that mean? You think about the power that it takes for God to raise someone from the dead. That's the power of the resurrection. And Paul is saying that I may know Christ by experience, not just by knowledge, and the power of his resurrection, that the power of God to raise someone from the dead, that that power lives within us, that we can say yes to Jesus, that Jesus can live through us, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that by experience of what God is doing in my life. And folks, when we understand that, there is truly victory in Jesus. When Christ is in us, living through us, by his power, for his glory. Verse 11, finally. He says in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's not saying, well, I'm hoping that this happens. By any means, if any way possible, this is what I want. He knows that the Lord's coming back. And really what, what this is, is he's saying, okay, whether through life and I'm living and the Lord comes back, 1 Thessalonians 4, then I will 
attain the resurrection from the dead. Or perhaps I will die and I will be resurrected and I will experience the same thing, the glorification of being with Christ. But his assurance is in Christ, in Christ alone. The, the, the righteousness of God credited to our account. Several questions for us this morning. Are you rejoicing in the Lord? No matter what your circumstances are. Are you trusting your own righteousness, your own heritage, or are you completely relying on Jesus and Him alone? Do you calculate everything that you have and have had as dung in comparison of knowing, loving, serving, and following Jesus? And are you hungry to know Him more? Are you passionate to say, Lord, there's more I need to know, and please reveal yourself to me? Let's pray. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I trust that you'll use this time as a reflection to search your own heart, to search your own life of knowing what, where you are spiritually. But I pray that, that you would just simply pray back to the Lord. If you're here this morning, you're not rejoicing in the Lord as you ought to, then say, Lord, would you help me not to look at my circumstances more than I look at you, of being the one that is sovereign and in control. If you're here this morning and you're trusting your own righteousness and you think you're going to go to heaven because of things that you have done, you need to admit that it's only Christ. And you need to call out to the Lord and confess your sins and acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior. And understand it's His righteousness and His righteousness alone. This morning, as you calculate things, is, it, is following Jesus worth it? Do you, do you count all the other things as, as dung? And you say, Lord, I've got the wrong priorities. I've had the wrong values, and I just want to follow you. And it might be this morning that you would say, you know, I'm not hungry like I used to be. I'm not pursuing Christ. I don't have the passion of, Lord, I just want to know you more and more, and I want to, I want to understand the resurrection power working in my life. Whatever your prayer is this morning, would you just cry out to the Lord there in your seat? Perhaps this afternoon, search your own heart and ask God to help. But make decisions that are calculated, that are deliberate, as the Spirit of God is working to convince you, as it says in John 16, that you might make the right decisions and rest solely in the credited righteousness of Christ. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you. Thank you for who you are and for what you have done. We pray in your name. Amen.